Casey and I took a trip last September. Uh, we went up to watch the, to, to not watch, but to be a part of the birth of my niece, Faith Skiles. And uh, it was a great time with the family. And on our way back, as we were traveling uh, down the road, we figured, well, let's go off, not down the 5 south, but let's go off to the 101 south and let's explore that part of California. And while we were on our way down, we came across uh, Salinas. Anybody know where Salinas is? Okay, some of you have been there. And does anyone know what Salinas is famous for? Good artichokes? Okay, I didn't know that. What else? John Steinbeck. That's correct. John Steinbeck, uh, a great 20th century American uh, writer and novelist. And in Salinas, there's a John Steinbeck Museum that we uh, visited and decided to go into and learned a little bit about this uh, this uh, great and, and very popular author. And one of the books that John Steinbeck uh, wrote was Of Mice and Men. Of Mice and Men. We, many of us have read that book. Uh, it's an interesting story. It has a lot of unique themes to consider. The main characters, George and Lenny, remember them? Uh, George was the rough and tough one. He was the no-nonsense kind of guy. And they were migrant workers traveling throughout the valley looking for work. And George was taking care of a guy named Lenny who was walking with him. And Lenny was very much unlike George. Lenny was uh, big and strong, but he was very tender and warm-hearted. Lenny was also mentally challenged, and that's one of the reasons why George had to take care of Lenny. But one habit that Lenny had led to his demise. Uh, And it was a a habit that he developed uh, as he was traveling along the road and and noticing animals along the sides of the road. He would uh, pick up mice in an attempt to care for them. It was his intention to lovingly care for this mouse that he would pick up and he would begin to pet the mouse. And Steinbeck writes that uh, unbeknownst to Lenny, because he was mentally challenged, he would pet the mice too hard, the mouse too hard, and end up taking the life of the mouse. In his attempt to nurture and to care for this animal that Lenny so loved, his good intentions ended up being evil. And that's the title of this message today, When Good Becomes Evil. Now, many of us see this in our day-to-day lives today. Uh, for instance, if we have ever lost a job, Or say you lost a loved one. Or say you're just going through a difficult time in your life. And someone comes up up alongside you and in their good intentions, they put their arm around you and they say something like, Oh, just trust the Lord and He'll work everything out. Oh, as long as you love God, He'll work everything out. Don't even worry about it. The good intentions of some people's statements or some of the things that people do can oftentimes really do harm. While they're intending to encourage you, while they're intending to do good, they end up discouraging you all the more. All they wanted was for you to sympathize with them. And you ended up quoting some Scripture and patting them on the back and walking out the door. Good intentions very often turn into harm. And this is very similar to what is taking place in Romans chapter 14. You can begin to turn there right now. In Romans 14, 
there is a Jewish and Gentile mixed church. And in this church, there are people with good intentions doing harm to others. Let's pray as we are about to enter into the study of God's Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask right now that you would open up our eyes, open up our minds, that we might be able to look into your Word, to understand its truths, and to apply it in a very real and evident way to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Turn to Romans 14 if you're not already there. And thank you to Michelle for getting these little waters up here. It's nice to have. You know, I want to give you a little bit of a background of Romans. Uh, We need to know what book we're looking at. So up on the screen there, background of Romans. Uh, Romans was written about 57 A.D. And uh, the author of Romans was the Apostle Paul. The recipients to this book was, again, a mixed group of Jewish and Gentile churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire uh, in the city of Rome. And Paul was uh, writing in a very, very unique situation. You see, at the time that Paul wrote in 57 AD, it was only three years ago that the Jews had returned to Rome. In 50 AD, a little bit of a history here, Claudius, this Roman emperor, the fourth Roman emperor of Rome, uh, expelled the Jews in 50 A.D. He expelled them, according to one historian, uh, Suetonius, he said he expelled them because they were bringing up things about this one called Christ. So we know that these Jews that he expelled were also believers. They believed in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And uh, interestingly enough, after the Jews left in 50 A.D., Four years later, uh, Claudius had a wife. Her name was uh, Agrippina. And in 54 AD, you see that Agrippina poisoned her husband, Claudius. And what's really interesting is that sculptors uh, from the first century actually got a sculpting of uh, Agrippina right before she poisoned him. And I wanted to show that to you. Oh. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. That was the wrong one. That's my wife, actually. Next slide. Next slide. There we go. There she is. Okay. Now we have Agrippina up on the screen. Um, That picture of my wife, by the way, was in the Louvre Museum, and she was standing by one of the sculptors of the, uh, one of the Roman emperors right there. But that's Agrippina. This is the wife of Claudius, the fourth Roman uh, emperor. And she is the one that, that poisoned him. Now the Jews... Hearing the news in 54 AD that Claudius had been poisoned, what do you think they did? They came back. So uh, they came back to Rome. They returned to Rome in approximately 54 AD with the hope that they would find peace and restoration only to find out later on that the next emperor that took control, the next Caesar, was a nice benevolent character by by the name of Nero. Uh, And as we all know, Nero uh, was the worst of them all, just about. And in 64 AD, Rome burned, and both Jew and Christian, all all believers, that is, in Jesus Christ, were blamed for the fire and entered into a time of severe persecution. Now, why do I give you all this background? Well, Paul is writing in 57 AD. 
He's writing three years after the Jews have returned. And in the midst of that four-year absence, the Gentile church in Rome had developed their own practices, their own understandings. They had come to learn a little bit more about Jesus Christ through perhaps other letters of the New Testament that had been circulated to them. And all of a sudden, it was a very Gentile church. When the Jews came back, there began to be some tension in the church. Paul is writing in chapter 14 to that tension. He is writing to dispel that tension. Let's take a look in your Bibles at chapter 14 of Romans, verses 1 to 3. Starting in verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Okay. On the positive side, receive the weak, Paul says. On the negative side, do not dispute with the weak. Now, there are some preliminary questions that are probably arising in your minds right now. Uh, The first of which is, who is Paul speaking to? Who is he primarily addressing when he says, receive the weak? And we're going to answer that question in just a minute. A second question you might be wondering is, who is Paul speaking of? He calls them the weak in the faith. Well, uh, what particular group of people might these be that Paul is speaking of? Thirdly, what does it mean that these people are weak in the faith? That's a very awkward construction that Paul does not normally use in his writings. So we have to define what does it mean to be weak in the faith? And fourthly and finally, a preliminary question might be, what might they be disputing about? What are they arguing about? And I think that verse, three begin, verse 2 and 3 begin to address those, situations, those questions. So let's answer these questions one at a time. First, who is Paul speaking to? Well, it says in verse 1, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Who is Paul speaking to? He's obviously not speaking to the weak. Instead, he's speaking to a group of people that eat all things, not merely vegetables. In our understanding of the New Testament, what kind of people group might this be? Anyone? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. The Gentiles were a group not held to Jewish law of the Old Testament. They're also known as the strong. If you go up a chapter to 15, verse 1, Paul is speaking directly to the Gentiles throughout the majority of chapter 14. And he is labeling them as the stronger or the strong. Now, who is Paul speaking of? Well, on the flip side, if the strong eat all things and the weak eat only vegetables, what people group... Think about this. What people group leaving their native land to go to Rome and finding all these uh, pagan deities that meat had been sacrificed to and finding in the marketplace uh, ways that meat was prepared that was not appropriate with their ways of doing things in their native land? What people group might be Paul speaking of? The Jews. He's speaking of the Jews. These Jewish people were very, very upset 
over the way meat was prepared in Rome. And they were very, very upset with the Christians, so-called Christians, who would be eating this meat prepared inappropriately as indicated in the Old Testament. Okay, a third question. A third question. What does it mean to be weak in the faith? Now this one I'm going to say we're going to to wait on this one. To be determined here. We're going to wait because later on this is going to be made explicitly clear what Paul means by weak in the faith. And the fourth question, what might they be disputing about? Well, this seems self-evident. They're disputing about what? Food. They're disputing about food. What kinds of foods are appropriate for eating for people who are God-fearing? What kinds of foods are appropriate for eating for those people who claim to be God-fearing? Now, I want to make one thing very, very clear. Take a look at the passage uh, again. In, 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 in verses 1 to 3, we will notice that Paul does not begin to address who is right and who is wrong. He calls them weak, so he's giving an indication of where he stands. But the first thing Paul does is to say, okay, let's diffuse the situation. The first thing he does is to say, let's diffuse the situation. He does not concern himself with who's right and who's wrong. He tells the strong, do not despise the weak. And he tells the weak, do not judge the strong. And as we go through this study in chapter 14, I want to bring out the application as we go. The first application here that we can see from Paul in in his graciousness is that if we are encountered with a conflict, if we are encountered with a problem, Look at the example that Paul does and realize that the first thing to do is to diffuse the situation. Diffuse the situation. This is something my wife is very, very good at when we have an argument. Okay, we we might have a little tiff and I will be so concerned with being right. I will be so concerned with being the one who's in the right in the argument that I can be proven to be justified in what I'm saying and that I can show her that she's wrong. But you know what my wife does? She is so unconcerned with who's right and who's wrong. The first thing she does is to diffuse the situation. She says, okay, honey. Oftentimes she'll accept fault, and it's not even her fault. And later on I'll realize that it wasn't her fault. And then I'll get really embarrassed and have to apologize profusely. But Casey is really good in our marriage at diffusing the situation. She knows how to cease a conflict with me. And that's why she's a great wife. Because I am so concerned with right and wrong that I forget sometimes to just calm down. Have everybody calm down, Paul says. Calm down. That's the first application. Uh, If you'll notice up on the screen there, when encountering a conflict, step one is to diffuse the situation. All right. Now, we come to verses 4 to 12. And I'm going to skip over And the reason I'm going to skip over them is because I want to address more of Paul's teaching than Paul's foundation. Okay? We are going to discuss verses 4 and 12, but I'm going to make summary statements for you. And you can go back and take a look at yourself and make sure that I'm I'm being accurate up here. But for the purposes of verses 4 to 12, Paul is building more of a foundation upon which he's going to instruct them with some more teaching. 
So let's review verses 4 to 12. Without reading them, I want to note this. Number one, God is judge and not you. Paul indicates this in verse 4. He's saying don't despise and don't judge because God is judge, not you. God will be judge between your dispute. Secondly, Paul goes on to say in verses 5 to 6 that believers, and this is important, believers have a variety of convictions from which they please God. Believers, Jew and Gentile, you and I, have a variety of convictions, personal convictions, from which we please God. That will be brought to light a little bit more as we read on later. Thirdly, verses 7 to 8, Paul indicates that a believer's convictions are made in relationship to God, that we are His. That we don't make these convictions whimsically or just, you know, I'm not going to do this without even giving a thought to it, but rather that our convictions are grounded in truly wanting to please God. I want to please God, and I'm going to make this conviction in order to please God. Paul says you've got to realize that people are making those convictions to God, not just making them whimsically. Fourthly, a final summary statement in verses 9 to 12, Jesus Christ is judge. He gets more specific here. Jesus Christ will judge, and we shall stand and give account before him for what we say and what we do. And Paul is referring to the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat judgment. And Paul makes it very clear especially to the weak, I think he's, he's really indicating this to them because they're the ones that were falling into more judgment. He's saying, realize that all will be judged. All will be judged by Christ. And take comfort in that and don't judge each other. So that's a summary of what's between these passages that we were looking at. And now let's turn to verse, verses 13 and following. In your Bibles, verses 13 and following. Therefore, Paul says... In light of everything I've just said to you in verses 4 to 12, that God is judge, that believers have convictions to God, not just whimsically, and that Jesus Christ will judge us individually. In in light of all that, Paul says this in verse 13, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Continuing on to 18. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy. In the Holy Spirit, he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Take a look in particular now at verse 13. Paul says, therefore, in light of what I've said in verses 4 to 12, do not judge. Let us not judge one another, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Now that word judge there, I've, I've put in a different color there. I, I like light bright as a kid. And you know, you put it in the different things and it lit up. And so I, I'm getting colorful on you here. Uh, but bear with me. And I do it for a reason because these are the words that are underlined in my Bible. And so if you have a Bible and you like to mark it up, uh, these are two good words to underline. 
There's a very good reason for that. It's the same word. The verb for judge and the verb for resolve is the same word in Greek, krino. And uh, the translators here translate them differently, which is perfectly acceptable. But note that Paul is saying, don't judge this way, judge this way. In light of what I've said, don't judge each other. Don't judge one another. But rather, judge this or resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in your brother's way. It's a play on words. Paul goes on to say in verse 14, and he breaks this up into two parts. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, it, to him it is unclean. Now, we're going to take this verse in verse 14 in, into two parts. The first part, let's look at the first part. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. Two questions. Number one, what is Paul convinced of? What is he convinced of based on verse 14? He's saying something is not unclean. Any idea what he might be speaking of? Food. Paul is speaking of food. Again, he's relating back to verse 2 and 3 when they were disputing about food. And he's saying, I know and am convinced that nothing is unclean of itself. And how do we know that he's speaking of food again? Well, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the word unclean was also a word for common and in Acts chapter 10, they would refer to, it was often referred to by Peter when he, when he looks at the, at the vision coming down, he says, Lord, I don't want to eat anything unclean or anything common. And so we know that anytime the word unclean is used, uh, more often than not, it's in relationship to food. And so what is Paul convinced of? That no food is unclean. Secondly, though, and this is a harder question to answer. How is he convinced of this? How is Paul convinced that no food is unclean? And he gives the answer, I am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean. And uh, John Varel and I were discussing this verse uh, a couple days ago. We are really trying to grapple with it and to understand what Paul meant by I am convinced by the Lord Jesus. Because it's interesting, you know, Paul never indicates... That, uh, that, that Jesus literally spoke to him and, and said these things to him, although it's possible. Uh, but for whatever reason, Paul says that he is convinced by the Lord Jesus. Now, that word by is the Greek word en. It can also have the idea of being in. I, I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus or by the Lord Jesus or sometimes, occasionally, within, within the Lord, or before the Lord Jesus or among the Lord Jesus. So among the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Paul could mean a variety of things here. Now, I'll give you some options to consider, and I'm not going to tell you uh, that one is right over the other because I'm unconvinced. Uh, but here's the options. In Mark 7, Mark 7, 18 and 19, you can do this on your own study, Jesus makes the statement, thus purifying all foods, thus purifying all foods. And uh, some attribute that to Jesus making all foods clean. Others attribute it to Jesus talking about simply the bodily function of purification. Okay, that's one option that Paul could be referring to. A second option is in Acts 10. 
Peter sees a vision from heaven come down. And, the Lord, and, and God declares, although it's not specified Jesus, but God declares that all foods are clean. That was in Acts 10. And that was a very revolutionary moment for the primitive church. Uh, a third example is that Paul had direct revelation from Jesus and that we don't hear about it in the New Testament, which is very, very possible. Uh, Paul, being a, an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, was most notably receiving revelation from Christ as he spoke. And it's perhaps this verse, in verse 14, where he indicates to us, I've received revelation from Jesus Christ, that no food is unclean. And a fourth option, which I kind of tend to, is that it was simply the general understanding of the apostles from the example in Acts 10 that Jesus Christ, through, through the Word of God, had declared all foods clean. So that it was a general understanding of the apostles since Acts 10 that they were to go on and to, to exclaim that all food had been cleansed. Now, if you, if you really want to get technical and you want to go back to what these, uh, why food was clean and unclean, you can look at uh, Leviticus, let's see, Deuteronomy chapter 14, Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, if you really want to get technical and find out why certain kinds of foods were not clean to the Jews. But nonetheless, let it be very clear that Paul is now, finally, after 14 verses, after 14 verses, well, after 14 statements that he is making, he finally makes a definitive statement on who is right and who is wrong. The first thing he does is diffuse the situation. But finally, Paul says, okay, now let me clarify the matter. I know and am convinced that nothing is unclean. He lets the strong know that they are in the right, if you want to be technical about it. But there's a big B-U-T in verse 14, and that's the second half of the verse. Look what he says in the second half of the verse. He says, but, and this is so important, here's the crux of Paul's teaching. To him who considers... Anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Let me read that again. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. To break this down into plain English, despite the fact that all food had been cleansed, if one is convinced or convicted that a particular food is sinful to eat, then it is sin for them to eat it. Then it is sin for them to eat it. That is what Paul's saying here. While on the one hand, he unequivocally makes clear that this person is in the right, the one who believes that all food is in fact cleansed. On the second half of that same statement, he says, but this is also correct, that if you have a conviction that something is unclean, it is unclean for you to eat it. And now we, we, need, we need to start enlarging this, because obviously this was a particular situation in the church at Rome that was taking place, and also in the church at Corinth. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 8-10. to 10. But this was a particular situation in Rome the food problem, and also the Sabbath day, day problem that they, that they were disputing about. 
But in, in modern language, we might relate this to uh, what movies we go to watch. Some Christians, I will never watch a rated R movie. Other Christians, I'll watch a rated R movie so long as I believe it's, it's appropriate. How about smoking? Some Christians, I will never smoke. Other Christians, I, f- I do not feel convicted that smoking is wrong. Drinking. Some Christians, never will a drop of alcohol touch my lips. Other Christians, I don't have a conviction that alcohol is wrong. Two well-meaning believers, both with very different convictions. And Paul is addressing these convictions. He's trying to help them live in harmony while keeping the convictions of a person intact for at least the time being. You might ask the question, well, if they are weak, if the Jews who at this particular time in Rome are not eating this food and they are allowed to eat it, should they become strong? And I think Paul is going to go on to answer yes. They should become strong. But the bigger question is, how should they become strong? How should they become strong? And the answer to that is is very unique because it is not simply by eating the food that they will become strong. It starts with the conviction. It starts with the conviction. So how are they to go from weak to strong? From not eating certain kinds of foods to realizing that those foods have in fact been cleansed. Paul says this, it is not by immediately changing their behavior that they are to do it, but rather they are to grow in their knowledge and in their comprehension of God's Word, which does what? Changes their convictions. Changes their convictions. Don't immediately change the behavior. No, 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 no. That is sin, Paul says. If you have a conviction that is wrong and you go on and do it, it's sin to you. Don't just switch the behavior. Begin by switching the mind. Turning the mind as you read and understand God's Word. Let it be very clear. The behavior must continue until the conviction changes. The behavior must continue until the conviction changes. And that brings us to our second point of application. Our second point of application is this. Abide by your own convictions. Abide by them because they are true to your heart. And secondly, respect those of others because they are also true to their hearts. Abide by your convictions. I would say, I would put a clause on that until your conviction changes by the Word of God. Abide by them because if you don't, you will be in sin. For the person who believes that alcohol is absolutely wrong for them to drink, I tell you today, maintain that behavior. Maintain that behavior until, through the Word of God, you deem otherwise that alcohol is permitted. Because that conviction is true to you, Paul says. And that in that conviction, you are attempting to be pure before God. And if you were to transgress it and drink, you would be in sin. Rather, keep your conviction until the Word of God demonstrates to you otherwise that in fact it is okay for you to drink alcohol. That's the practical application. Abide by your own convictions. Secondly, respect the convictions of others. Now here, 
here's where Paul's really talking strong. He's saying, look, don't make fun of them. Don't think that, you know, they're being silly with their conviction. Don't despise them, Paul says. Rather, respect their conviction. Show honor to their conviction. And an example of this uh, that, uh, that we see maybe is true to life is I always think of a husband and wife example. Uh, oftentimes, I've, I've seen husbands that uh, do feel free to, to, to drink alcohol and, and wives who are very much opposed to it. I just see this as a, a commonality in a lot of marriages, not all marriages, but in some cases. Or the wife has a conviction that they really, they really don't want their husband to drink. And the husband has a conviction that it's okay for me to drink. Here's where it comes into play in a very vivid way. The wife has this conviction. The husband needs to respect that conviction. He needs to show respect that he would be harming his wife if he were to participate in the drinking of alcohol in front of her. That ring is really true to home. Now, you can apply that in different ways in your family's life or with the life of your friends. I don't know what convictions you have that differ but realize that you need to be very careful to respect the convictions of others, not to cause them grief or harm. And let's go on and talk about that grief and harm. Look at verse 15. Paul says this, If your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Now, this is a very interesting verse because the construction is unique. That, that word there, because of your food, that is underlined, if your brother's grieved because of your food, is actually picked up and put at the front of the sentence in Greek. And it's, done there, it's been there for emphasis. Paul's saying this, Are you, for a thing as petty as food, going to grieve your brother? Are you, for an insignificant element as food, going to cause grief and harm to your brother? The answer is no. Why would we do that? Why would we do that? A thing as petty as food, a thing as petty as alcohol, a thing as petty as gambling. Are we really going to cause other people grief for a thing as petty as that? No, Paul says. He says, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are not walking in love. This is not what God expects of you. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. That word destroy, uh, we need to take a look at that. Uh, Apolumai in Greek, uh, it has a lot of different connotations. It can go as far as meaning eternal damnation. And it can also be as weak as causing bodily harm or or just uh, physical affliction in a sense. And I think the context suggests much more of a temporal temporal uh, meaning of that word destroy. So Paul is basically, you know, he's emphasizing that don't cause them grief, don't cause them harm, don't cause destruction in that person's life. That's not helpful for a thing as petty as food. Why would we do that? Verse 16. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Now, he, he juxtaposes good and evil here. Um, and it, on the one hand, things that are good. Now, in this case, Paul's talking about the liberty 
the liberty that the strong person has been given, the, conviction, the, the lack of convictions that you have, that you are liberated in Christ to do certain things, maybe drink, maybe smoke, maybe go to a rated R movie. If, if you have no convictions about some of these gray areas of the Christian life, he says, don't let that liberty, that good, be spoken of by others, by the weaker, as evil. Don't let your liberty be spoken of in an ill manner. Because it's going to cause harm to the person who sees you using your liberty in a way that is not becoming. When good becomes evil. When your liberty does harm. Uh, now, now we come to the, the question that I wrestled with the most in, in my studies. How often should I capitulate to the convictions of another? And maybe a second question, how far should I go? But the first, how often should I have to capitulate to the convictions of others? How often? Well, Paul, Paul doesn't seem to put a, a temporal notion on this. He doesn't say, go as far as this. It seems to me that so long as a person's conviction, whatever it be, be it, say it be alcohol, if a person has a conviction that drinking alcohol is wrong, if that conviction is made in their hearts with an attempt to please God with their lives, then you should go, then you should not drink alcohol as long as it takes, so, so not to cause them bodily harm in front of them. If they have a conviction and that conviction is intended to please God with their lives, then you do it as often as it takes to refrain from drinking alcohol in front of them. Well, how far should I go? Do, I know that it's, an, it's something, Neil, to, to, to not drink it in front of them, but, but say, for instance, uh, and here's another example. Say, for instance, uh, my wife is asking, is not only saying it, it really harms me when you drink alcohol in front of me, but she's also saying it really harms me if you drink alcohol at all. Wow, that's, that's a tough one. That's a tough one, and I wrestled with this. You know, it, It's one thing to, to not drink alcohol in their presence, but it's quite another if, if a wife asks her husband never to drink alcohol at all for her sake. And again, I ask the question, will it cause harm? Will it cause offense? Will it be a stumbling block to the wife if at the end of the day she asks her husband, did you drink? And he says, yes. In that case... Yes, it would cause harm. It would cause offense. And it would cause stumbling. Therefore, if required, when they are not even with you, you are to honor their convictions. This brings us to our third application. Note this very well. This is really the crux. Restrain your liberties in Christ for the sake of your fellow believer. Do so in their presence. And if required... Do so in their absence. If they ask you, and you know it's going to cause them harm if you've done something, it is best to refrain from it. It's best. And you say, whoa, Neil, that is so hard to swallow. You're really pushing this envelope a lot right now. You're, you're, you're taking this and you're really pushing it to extremes. Well, I don't think I am. 
Because Paul's about to say something in the next two verses that makes this very easy, much easier to swallow. Take a look at verse 17. He says this, For the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's not about the temporal pleasures of life. But it is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is Paul saying here? He's saying if you are to be a kingdom living person, if you are to be one who conforms to what it means to be under the kingship of Jesus Christ in this life and in the life to come, guess what you as a kingdom participant are going to be concerned about? Righteousness, peace, and joy. Guess what you're not going to be concerned about? Burgers and fries. You're going to be concerned about spiritual qualities that build up, not about temporal, physical delights. And perhaps even more uh, stunning is verse 18. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. I, I love this verse because it, for here, here's where his thesis comes complete for me. Paul says this. If you do this, if you abstain in their presence and if required in their absence from doing liberties that you have in Christ, if you abstain from that and you emphasize righteousness and emphasize joy and emphasize peace, you will be acceptable to God. If, if, you're, if you're wondering, where have I heard acceptable to God before? Turn two chapters prior to in chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your reasonable service. This is your spiritual act of worship. Let me quote it verbatim here. He says in Romans 12:1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable service? He's saying in view of what God has done for you, what I'm asking you now is perfectly reasonable. It's not hard to swallow. It's perfectly reasonable. That is somewhat mind-boggling because for a lot of us it's hard to swallow that we have to abstain even in their absence if needed. But, Jesus, but God, through the Apostle Paul, says, no, 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 no. It's actually reasonable that you do this. Not unreasonable. And secondly, that you'll be accepted by men. Now, I thought about that, and I thought about the respect that I have for certain men in this church and, and women in this church. And I, I don't, for the, for the respect that I show to some of you, I don't show it because of your job. And I don't show it because of the money that you make or the house that you have. I, I recognize that in my own life, I show respect to people when they go the extra mile. When they do things that are turning the other cheek. When they, when they take it on the chin when they shouldn't. When they diffuse the situation when I know they're right. When they abstain when they, in their liberty, could fight back or, 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 or argue with someone and be in the right. I find more respect for the people that diffuse the situation and abstain from their liberties. 
And I think that's what Paul's talking about. He's saying you'll be acceptable to God if you do this. Or acceptable to men if you do this. Let's move on. Verses 19 to 23. Therefore, 19 to 21. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Uh, again, this is, these are summary statements. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. Paul's saying, look, verse 19, don't, or verse 20, he says, don't destroy. Verse 19, he says, edify. They're, they're juxtaposed there. Edify means to what? Build up. Destroy means to tear down, okay? To cause harm. And Paul says, look, you know what I'm saying now. I've already said it's reasonable, so build up. Don't destroy. Verse 21. It is good neither to eat meat, nor to drink wine, nor what? Do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Verse 22. And here we come to the conclusion of the passage. Do you have faith? Paul asks. Or in some translations, it's actually not listed as a question. It might say something like, the faith which you have. Uh, Both are taken from slightly different manuscripts, but really the same point is being made here. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Let me stop right there. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. What is Paul speaking of with this construction? At first glance, this is a very unusual statement. We don't see Paul making statements like this very often. Um, it seems to me that we can look back at 14.1. Take a look at the next slide here and notice the parallels. In chapter 14, verse 1, we see that faith is mentioned. Now notice that it's not mentioned again until verses 21 and 22. Excuse me, 22 and 23. Paul's drawing a parallel here. He's putting, he's almost, he's intro, here's conclusion, to a, in a sense. And based on what we've been learning today in, in chapter 14, we've come to realize that this faith, this faith that the people are, th- th- this faith that Paul is discussing is a faith of conviction, is a faith of personal convincing, is something that I am convinced in my faith that this is right for me or this is wrong for me. Paul is referring to convictions. And I think the same is true here in verses 22 and 23. It's as if he's saying this. Look at the New American Standard translation. Instead of have it to yourself before God, the New American Standard reads, have it as a conviction. Have it as your own conviction before God. Now, conviction is not the word listed there. I'll grant you that. But that is the sense of the passage. Paul is saying, have your convictions to yourself. To yourself. Why, why, why might he say that? Because if a strong person who is convinced that alcohol is not wrong, how helpful do you think it is that he walk into the church and say, hey, I'm going to booze it up tonight. Anybody want to come out to the bar after church? Is that going to be helpful? No. What's it going to do? It's going to cause harm. It's going to destroy. It's going to offend. 
Paul says in verses, verses 22, verse 22 right here, if you have these convictions stemming from your faith, keep it quiet. Don't proclaim it for all to hear. Because all you're going to do is end up causing some harm. If you have convictions in gray areas of the Christian life and experience, keep it to yourself. Don't parade it around. Don't allow others to be harmed by it. And Zane Hodges makes a very, very good point when he writes this. He says, My faith does not need to find expression in overt action to be real. God can see that I have faith to do a thing even when I sacrificially abstain from doing it. My urge to demonstrate it is unnecessary. That's Zane's comments in verse 22. And it's so true to life there. My urge to demonstrate it is unnecessary. Don't feel compelled to teach others about this liberty that you have because they still deem some things to be sin. Okay, verses, the end of verse 22. Happy or blessed... Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. The flip side, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Two things. On the one hand, realize this. You who are are strong, you who have a large amount of liberties in Christ, realize that you're blessed. That's what Paul says. Realize that you are blessed. Happy are you who is not condemned, who, does not, who is not convicted in the liberty that you choose to do. You are blessed. Recognize that. On the flip side, realize that the person who doubts, the person who has certain convictions and they doubt that if they do a certain thing it will be sin, he's saying, boy, that person's got it tough. That person's got it tough. So he's exhorting the strong to bear with them. They're with them because it is difficult for them in their convictions because if they go ahead and do a thing, they condemn themselves. On the one hand, you are blessed if you have liberty in Christ to do certain things. On the other hand, the weak are condemned because their conscience betrays them if they do a certain thing. And this brings us to a final application. The final, fourth and final application is this. Recognize and appreciate the blessing of a liberated conscience in Christ. Recognize and appreciate, if you do have a more liberated conscience, that you are blessed and that in your blessing, it is reasonable for you to bear with the weak, as he says in 15.1, bear with 